Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today, why Canada finds itself in Russia's cyber warfare crosshairs, and just how vulnerable are we? We meet one woman putting real sparkle into living an alcohol-free lifestyle. But first, a crisis in cattle country. What's causing a critical shortage of feed and what it means for you, the consumer? Joining me now is one of them from Iron Springs, Alberta, Leighton Coke of Coke Farms, a family-owned feedlot. Leighton, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Yeah, thank you. Now, Hello. During, the pandem- during the pandemic, we've heard the word unprecedented far too often, but I gather it's really no exaggeration mm-hmm. here. How bad is it? Well, the, the challenges are, are real. The supply chain is definitely got some some major major holes in it right now and that's we're feeling that in our industry what does that look like for you at at coke farm Uh, so we've had a really awesome staff that have been able to come to work every day because cattle cattle need care 24 7 and um so that part has been good, but the challenges of supplying the the, the nutri- nutrients and the feed for cattle has become a real challenge with, with the kind of the supply chain disruptions. So, how much feed? I mean, how much feed would you normally have now, and how much do you actually have? So, uh, normally, we would have grain delivered to us that in truckloads from local farmers across western the prairies mm-hmm. and it, it would be uh, seven truckloads a day that we would receive anywhere from Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. However, with the drought, we didn't they didn't produce enough grain to supply us so we had to change over to supplies of grain from America, which normally would work seamlessly, and however, it hasn't because it has come on rail, and rail has been a real struggle. So we, we are running out of feed. Almost done, I understand, by Sunday. We've had three times since November where we were getting right to the edge of no feed. Kind of like, compare it to a shopping mall or shopping shop mart where there's no food on the shelves. We've had three times since November where we had not enough feed to get through the next day. And thankfully, each time we've been able to find supplies. But today, we're sitting in a situation where... By Sunday, I have no grain left in the bin to feed the cattle and no no trucks able to deliver unless the train comes in. What happens in the short term if there is no feed? If you could explain to listeners how, how that impacts, um, how many cows you have and how that impacts what you're able to do on your farm. Yeah, so it, in our operation because we're fairly intensive livestock operation. We have 20, 
8,000 cattle on feed, and they all need 30 pounds of grain to continue to grow each day. And we have, um, if, if the grain does not show up, if the train doesn't come in on Saturday night, which they were, were promised it will, but we're not sure, if it doesn't show up, we have to change to some other feed supply, which would be hay or forage or silage, which would completely mess up the the the, the cow's stomach because they're used to eating a certain uh, meal, and if we have to change it totally, it'll give them major stomach upset, basically. What is the impact of that for the rest of us out here, outside of cattle country, who who kind of know, you know, city folk, so to speak? What's the impact down the line if, if this crisis continues for you? I, I guess the 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 long sort of uh, view of this is if we have to change our cattle off of the diet that they're on, they stop producing pounds of beef, which beef translates into something you buy in a grocery store. And if we can't continue to produce it because of lack of feed, that limits what's available to the consumer. So we will which, see that. I yeah. guess, in essence, ends up kind of causing a, a shortage of supply. I know this is, sounds like this is a perfect storm with drought, um, supply chain issues, rail issues, um, you know, things that have happened in other parts of the, of the country to take away some of that transportation flexibility. To try and ensure that you have a, that this doesn't happen in the future, what needs to be done to ensure that you have a steady supply of the, of the grain that you need? Well, I, in a perfect world, we would have rainfall in Western Canada and produce enough grain, but that's being a little bit um, facetious. The the reality is there's enough grain in North America, but it has to get to where it needs to get. And that's been the real challenge is taking grain that's growing in Iowa or Minnesota or Illinois or Indiana and getting it to the cattle or chickens or pigs or um, cows that need it in Western Canada today. It's it's abnormal because normally you don't have to rely on U.S. grain. However, because we have to rely on that, we have to rely on rail transport to get the job done. And that's that's a challenge. The rail is not not being able to get the job done. I'm speaking with Leighton Coke of Coke Farms in Iron Springs, Alberta, about a crisis, a shortage of feed for cattle right now that's uh, causing problems in cattle country. Um, as a last question for you, Leighton, what now? What next in the short term? We're um, we're, we're going to hope and pray that 
that supply chains can continue to run, that we, we won't have too many kind of outside influences stopping it, things like um, vaccine, vaccine mandates for truckers and rail people mm-hmm. uh, to get supplies where they need to go. But the reality is we will, we will do our best and work with whatever we can to get feed to our cattle. But we'll, it, it, it means standing on our head and spitting nickels some days just to get that done. Leighton Coke of Coke Farms in Iron Springs, Alberta tonight. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your story with our audience, letting them understand exactly what's happening uh, these days in terms of that crisis. You're welcome. I hope things start to get back to a little bit of normal for all of us. Well, Prime Minister Trudeau was talking Ukraine and Russia today, announcing that Canada is giving Ukraine $120 million alone to help bolster its economy. The Prime Minister saying it's one of the top things the Ukrainian government had asked for. Here's more from the Prime Minister. The conversations that our foreign minister had with uh, Ukrainian officials, including the Ukrainian president, stressed that. And we're happy to be there to uh, reinforce the resilience and the strength of Ukraine's economy faced with Russian destabilization, including economic destabilization. Canada has been and will continue to be a friend and ally of Ukraine. Uh, and we will continue to be there to support them and to uh, ensure that Ukrainian people get to determine their futures, not, uh, not Vladimir Putin. The Prime Minister's comments cap off a week in which warnings to the Kremlin about the high price of any military incursion into Ukraine got a little more stern. But ongoing tensions over Ukraine sparked warnings here at home too from Canada's cyber spy agency about the threat of Moscow-backed cyber attacks on critical infrastructure in this country. Cybersecurity expert Claudio Popa is here to explain and provide some context. Thanks for joining us, Claudio. Thank you for having me. Now, Canada Canada has been a pretty vocal Kremlin critic since this all began in Ukraine, uh, you know, many years ago. So how surprising is that that Russia would have this country in its so-called cyber crosshairs? You know what? It's it's not particularly surprising because um, of the the, the type of uh, rhetoric that we've heard um, at the political level, at the military level, um, because of the closeness uh, between our countries, it, it certainly seems to to make sense uh, that uh, Canada would be on uh, a little bit of an alert at this point. Um, I mean, we must always be on alert to some extent about these things. I mean, cyber attacks have been a tool in the in the Russian arsenal for and, and other countries for a long time. What did you make of the timing of this particular warning? Well, I think that the timing is um, uh, propitious in the sense that uh, there seems to be heightened tensions. Uh, we've heard some uh, we've heard some warnings from the U.S. president. Uh, we hear that. There may be an imminent um, uh, aggressive attack against uh, Ukraine, and um, and uh, we've heard in the past that if if Russia were to feel uh, attacked, then they might strike back. And and at the moment, 
the cyber domain is where it's at. So, uh, so certainly uh, from the perspective of, of striking back in an indirect way, um, critical infrastructure is a place that we have seen over the past five years, six years, we've seen a lot of, of uh, exercises that have been testing the resilience of operational technology, of national security, especially at the level of, of cyber systems and, um, and you know, power grid, uh, uh, power stations, utilities, those types of uh, infrastructure. How vulnerable is Canada to these kinds of attacks? And how much preparation are we doing to protect ourselves, knowing what's happening uh, overseas? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, we don't have exact answers to that. Uh, we know that a couple of years ago, uh, there were significant vulnerabilities in in uh, power systems, in um, critical infrastructure, and um, and certainly that that's not just in Canada. That's across North America. Um, we've seen it in Eastern European countries. We've seen a lot of very similar vulnerabilities in uh, operational technology, the type of technology that drives large industrial assets that can have a, a systemic impact on on our way of life and um, uh, the good news is that organizations have made significant improvements over those uh, past few years in particular in the way that they've been standardizing their adoption of security controls of uh, safeguards of incident testing tabletop exercises and in general just raising their level of preparedness and resilience. So, so certainly um, that level of protection has never been higher. We're speaking with cybersecurity expert Claudio Popu about, uh, Popa rather, about warnings here at home from uh, Canada's cyber, cyber spy agency about uh, the threat of Moscow-backed cyber attacks on this country. I mean, we saw some cyber attacks on Ukraine recently. Uh, Russia denies those, of course, but but we did see how cyber attacks are used, even in this particular time, in this particular conflict. Certainly. Um, one of the things that's important for people to realize is that uh, attribution, which is the ability to tell who's attacking whom, is almost always the hardest thing in the world of cyber warfare. Uh, so when you see attacks or when organizations and governments report attacks against them, uh, they're never sure who it is that's attacking them. There certainly is an element of correlation. Um, and certainly the timing uh, is important here, but it's also important to realize that uh, there's not a hundred percent certainty of of who the aggressive aggressors are in the cyber domain. That's one of the hardest things to to pin down. Yeah, the plausible deniability, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, Claudio, just just as you're an expert in this, so I've always been curious about this aspect of it. How capable are is Russia and and its and its proxies, so to speak, of the people that we believe work for them. Um, how capable are they when it comes to this kind of, um, this kind of quote unquote warfare, cyber warfare, because it always seems like it's just a sort of ominous threat that hangs over us. But I'm curious as to just how legitimate a threat it is. And, and, and again, 
how how does Russia use it? That's an excellent question. Uh, how how do governments use uh, capabilities, and where do their government, their innate government capabilities, uh, stop, while the capabilities of of mercenary groups start? Because anytime you see organized crime perform uh, certain attacks, like we've seen in the in the U.S. against uh, pipelines, those types of things tend to be business cards that are that are put out there uh, for the world to notice and certainly for their own government to notice so that they could be hired instead of some other group because they have some mad skills that that might be useful in these types of situation or because they might be useful in creating that type of buffer between the public and their own government. So uh, the ability of a government to leverage mercenaries is one thing. Uh, The ability of a government to train their own um, actors is quite another. Uh, I believe both are significant. Um, Certain Russian a certainly Russian uh, government-trained uh, hackers benefit from from the best uh, the best practice that uh, that's available. Uh, from what we've seen, the groups that have been uh, that have had attacks attributed to them have. Uh, have not shown any sort of limitation in what they've chosen to to do. Uh, they've certainly uh, shown the ability to create malicious code, distribute malicious code, leverage proxy chains in order to hide their origin, um, clean up behind them, uh, and certainly use false flag attacks that uh, that can monopolize the attention of of whoever might be watching or, you know, trying to put out fires while there's a, a, a much more impactful but quiet attack going on behind the scenes. So these are typical strategies and tactics that go on regardless of, of who the attacker is, whether it's the United States through or in collaboration with Israeli assets mm-hmm. or whether it's it's um, it's Russia or China, etc. It's a fascinating and ominous world, the the world of the cyber security or the cyber arsenal. Thank you so much, Claudio Popa, mm-hmm. for uh, sharing your information with us. Cybersecurity expert Claudio Popa tonight about uh, Canada's cyber spy agency warning about the threat of a Moscow-based cyber attack on critical infrastructure in this country. Well, for those of you who committed to a dry January this year, we're heading into the final stretch. A growing number of us seem to be taking a pass on alcohol as a way to ring in the new year and recover from those holiday indulgences. But increasingly, some are choosing to extend that booze-free stretch year-round, or at least cut back in a big way. And thanks to demand, there are more and more alcohol-free choices out there to enjoy. Joining me now to walk us through the world of the sober curious is Sarah Kate, creator of the website somegoodcleanfun.com, all about embracing an alcohol-free lifestyle. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me today. It is, I mean, I'm always really curious about the aha moment in these in these circumstances when people sort of embrace something and then start to tell other people about it. And uh, perhaps you could tell our listeners about the aha moment you had when it came to to drinking. 
So I had been sort of on an unhealthy path for quite a while. And uh, I had a, you know, a, a couple of instances over a holiday where I was like, you know what, I just don't like this anymore. And uh, so I, you know, tried to cut back. And it was the spring, just, just as COVID was starting, where I said, I'm going to do a 30 day alcohol free experiment through Annie Grace's Naked Mind, this Naked Mind. And I felt so darn good after those 30 days. It was tough. It wasn't easy. It's not easy. There's a lot of social pressure. Um, especially during the pandemic, being on social media, everybody was drinking during the day and, you know, and trying to cope with it. And it was tough to ignore that. But you f- I felt so darn good. I'm like, this is incredible. I just have never felt healthier and, you know, on top of the world. And my aha moment was really realizing that I didn't need it to cope, that I could function as a human being without it. And I was strong enough to withstand some of the social pressure. If you could get through the beginning of the pandemic without alcohol, you can get through anything. (laughs) Uh, And you do go into that. I mean, we do have a complex relationship with alcohol in Western society in Canada, at least Uh, not all of us, but some of us. Uh, And you did, you do explore that a bit, or at least you've talked about that a bit. Uh, How was it for you? So um, this, luckily the, the pandemic has, it, it really prevented me from going out and being in situations where I where I had to choose for quite a while. So that first little bit for me was was easier because I was sheltering at home, sheltering in place. And uh, but it is it is really difficult to to um, just you know navigate your way through the world because it's coming at you from every every angle. So no matter what you do, where you go, um, my daughter and son and I were reading a, a Harry Potter. So I think it was. And we started flagging with little flags, stickers in the book, how many times JK Rowling brought booze into the the story as a literary device. So I couldn't even read to my kids and it wasn't triggering me at all. It was just this awareness of like, uh, oh my God, it's everywhere. Everywhere you turn, children's books, entertainment, people talking about it, social media, your friends, like women say to each other now, hey, let's grab a drink you know, instead of let's have some coffee or tea. So yeah, it was, it's, uh, it's, it's tough, but it's manageable. I guess you would have noticed it even more when you decided to stop. Yeah, you do. (laughs) You, You actually like your eyes are, your eyes are wide open after when you say, okay, this is my lifestyle now. And you start to really assess like where you are in the spectrum of needs. Um, when it comes at you, like, do I really need to have this right now? But you do notice it a lot more. What was the toughest part? early on, just trying to wean yourself off, not just the, just the social aspect of it even. I think it was the, the, the toughest aspect was what, what do I do if I don't drink? It's the mental aspect. It's the, and I'm not going to get into this, but (laughs) when you use a glass of wine to cope for 20 years, you've got to dig into why you're doing that. And it's, that's the toughest part is doing the work on yourself and, you know, the, the entryway into that is, um, you know, choosing, I'm going to, I'm going to drink something else. I'm going to, you know, use a different strategy. I'm going to sit down on the couch and, you know, cry for five minutes instead of grabbing a glass of wine, right? You've got to do the work. You decided to create a website then at some point you decided that this was something that you wanted to share, um, with other people. Tell me a bit more, more about how that came about. So some good, clean fun came about because I do like to write and I do like to share things. I'm just an oversharer as it is. And 
Um, and I wanted a, I wanted a forum to sort of start writing a little bit about this experience and my uh, this idea of rethinking drinking. So I, I had really been excited about this idea that, wow, we can all live without alcohol um, or reduce our alcohol if we talk more about it, if women understand more about what it's doing to their bodies. And that's morphed a little bit into um, also embracing this, this uh, alcohol-free drinks this booming like industry of alcohol free drinks. And so it, um, it started really from a place of, of passion. I wanted to share my story. I wanted to talk about why I stopped drinking and um, the, the way I was coping with that. And it's, and where I was noticing it in the world. So in Harry Potter on TV and, you know, and, and desperate housewives or, or sorry, uh, real housewives, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And, but it's also embraced now more, more of the alcohol free drinks. What were you, I mean, I was going to ask you about what the reaction to the website was, but what was the reaction within sort of your inner circle, your family, your friends, when you sort of announced, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to change, I'm going to change this. So, I mean, I think my, my close family and friends were definitely supportive, like, great, you know, good. And I, I was very, I took a very soft approach. Like, you know what, guys, I think I'm just going to cut back for a little while. I didn't even tell my husband really that I was doing it. And he kind of rolled his eyes. Yeah, right. You're giving up drinking. And the more when the longer it went on, people were like, wow, you're really serious about this. Um, I did get, you know, and you, I'm very open on social media about it. And, you know, you do get those those people that are like, well, you you might have a problem, but I don't. Like, why do you have to post about this stuff? And I've, I, I've learned to just ignore that and not make, not let it rile me up because I really want to pass the message on that I was using a glass of wine or two or three and started turning into four glasses of wine every night. You know, it's, it starts to escalate your tolerance gets higher and higher. There's a woman out there listening right now who is feeling like she's never going to get to the other side of that, those four glasses of wine. And she wants to feel good about herself and she's going to hear me and she's going to take the next step tomorrow and, and switch out to a non-alcoholic wine or something. Right. And that's why, that's what I, why, um, you know, I, I didn't care that people were responding the way they were. I'm speaking with Sarah Kate, creator of the website, Some Good, Good Clean Fun, all about embracing an alcohol-free lifestyle. I, I mean, the website took off. Were you surprised? I was not surprised at all because I could feel the groundswell. Um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about a tipping point, right? Everybody knows about the tipping point. And I could feel the tipping point about three quarters of the way through 2020. I could hear it on social media, women saying, I feel disgusting about myself. I'm not feeling great. I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I don't want to drink anymore. The groundswell was there. It started to rise. And when I launched the website in March, 2021, so almost a year ago, um, you know, immediately I started getting, you know, visits and social media traffic to, to the website. And I get thousands and this dry January has been incredible. There's I mean, triple page, triple the page views of last month, but also, you know, in the thousands, tens of thousands of page views of, on the website. What can you find on this for people who haven't seen it? What can you find on the site in general? So right now you're going to find a lot of dry January recipes. So you're going to find a lot of, um, you know, uh, easy things. So here's my thing. You, if you're going to do a dry lifestyle, an alcohol-free lifestyle, you're going to cut back. It has to be easy. There's, there's something really nice about an elevated cocktail, but when you have kids holding onto your pant leg and you're trying to make dinner, you do not have time to make a craft cocktail. So I try and create recipes or suggestions for products that are easy to have on hand, easy to make a drink with. So, you know, there's a hint, there's about 10 or 15 dry January recipes. They're using uh, alcohol-free spirits. 
there's a wine a wine review. Uh, we're going to do more of that now that there's more uh, wine available in Canada, good alcohol-free wine. I'm going to do more wine reviews. And there's some articles on things like parenting during dry January and lifestyle strategies. Do you sleep better when you drink a glass of wine? Is that a myth or is it, you know, is it is it false? So, um, yeah, it's some great information for anybody going down that path. And just to remind listeners, the website's name, just in case they want to go have a quick look. So sorry, some good, some good clean fun.com. There you <laughs> some, go. I, I, I knew it was that. <laughs> some good clean fun.com. I knew it was that, but I wanted to make sure. We're speaking with Sarah Kate, creator of the website, somegoodcleanfun.com, all about embracing an alcohol-free lifestyle. We thought it'd be important to do this. We're into that home stretch of dry January now. I know a lot of people I know, at least, have decided to take the month down uh, alcohol-free. And um, we're going to try and give you some more inspiration here with these uh, with these sort of 10 days, 10, 11 days to go. Um, Sarah Kate, one of the things I found interesting, we talked about this earlier, is dry January at times can feel like people simply go to ground as if, you know, once they say, OK, it's dry January, we'll see you in February. Um, is that something you've noticed a lot? Like, do you hear that from people who come onto your site or communicate with you? Yeah, I think it's sort of this this idea that like, oh, well not drinking anymore, can't have fun. And that's why I wanted to call this site some good, clean fun, because it really is a personal choice, whether you have fun or not. And so, you know, we talked about this idea of like, well, you can't go out for dinner. And yes, you sure can. You sure can. You can go out for dinner still. You can try a different drink. You can, you can still, there's lots of activities you can do that don't involve going to a bar that don't involve drinking. And um, I, you know, I, I, I want to encourage people to, to embrace this idea of what I call it, there's a book called the sober lush. And that's what it is, you are you're you're embracing the lushness of life without something fogging your vision. Sometimes, though, it's nice to have a drink in your hand socially. And I've noticed and I've noticed I'm hearing this from people I know, that not only is the demand for alcohol free options growing fast, but so it seems is the supply. What have you been seeing? And, and how fast is it growing? So to put this into perspective, when I started down this road, um, you know, close to two years ago, so April 2020, there was no alcohol-free marketplaces online in Canada where you could just go and order alcohol-free drinks at the click of a button. You could get them at your grocery store, but they were low quality. Um, you know, there, there, there wasn't a lot of selection. There are now nine or 10 um, online marketplaces that people across Canada can go online and choose whatever they want, alcohol-free beer, wine, zero-proof spirits, and have it delivered right to their door. Mind you, it's freezing here, so maybe not, or don't order something from BC right now <laughs> to come to Ontario. But um, it is it. the market has absolutely exploded, not only in the availability of products, but, but production. So in Canada, you've got Libra Beer, you've got Sexy AF from Calgary, you've got Sobri from Guelph, um, and a variety tons in Quebec. Quebec is actually a hotbed of, of um, innovation and exploration into the world of alcohol-free uh, drinks and products. And it is, I mean, I, I can't keep up with it. I, I, I've tried to write little news briefs on my website. You know, here's a new product, here's a new product. There was one week where there was five new things that have launched that week and there are celebrities launching alcohol-free drinks um uh you know Katy Perry just launched an apparent uh non-alcoholic aperitif right so it's it's just um you know we're, we're now at that point where it's it's starting to get momentum and anything that you would like to drink there are there are options available that taste good um I know you've I've seen you referred to as an alcohol-free sommelier which is a great term 
Um, <laughs> I was wondering what some of your favorites are, some of the things you found or discovered over the last few years that you really think are uh, are really good products. Yeah, so I just discovered a brand from Germany of um, alcohol-free wine. It's called Eins Y Zero. So you can actually go to my website and there's a review of this rosé. Rosé wines right now are are sort of the home home run of the alcohol-free wine world. And so this is an Eins Y Zero rosé. Absolutely indistinguishable from a regular rosé. There's a sparkling wine called Naughty. AF N O U G H T Y A F from the UK. And it's, it's, uh, it's got a rosé. It's just one of my hands down favorites. And as far as alcohol-free spirits go, there are several brands. I mentioned Sobri earlier. They make a great zero proof gin. Liars from Australia has about 15 different flavors that, uh, you know, of anything you want, they make an absinthe um, for a zero proof absinthe, right? So it's, uh, they're, they're a go-to and they're available in Canada now. So liars.ca you can go grab that. Um, and then there's also a, uh, I'm trying to think, oh, sorry, my, a bur- there's a bourbon. <laughs> yeah. This is my last thing. There's a bourbon from California called free spirits. And it is incredible. If you're, since you're in Victoria and you're, if you're listening in Victoria, sansorium.ca or.com sansorium.com sells free spirits. So I would highly recommend, uh, checking out the, the free spirits bourbon. Absinthe bourbon. It's, uh, it's impressive. Some good clean fun.com for more information. If you're curious about, uh, some of those, some of those products that, uh, that Sarah just mentioned. Um, you mentioned a bit earlier that, that at the end of the day, it's difficult, especially in your case, you have kids, you have stuff going on. You just want to reach for something, something soothing doesn't have to be alcohol. What are the, some of the simple things that you suggest, um, that people can make when they get home after a long day that would replace that glass of wine that used to be so easy to pour for you? Yeah. You know what I used to do? Um, so for, first thing I had on hand really was that the gin. So a zero proof gin, there's lots of them available. Gin and tonic. It, it cuts the edge. It makes you feel like you've got an elevated grown up drink in your hand. If you don't have a zero proof gin on hand, um, you know, you could try apple cider vinegar um, in some club soda and a lime juice, a little bit of lime, um, you know, make your, it's something that has a bite and a zing and it's refreshing because that's what your palate is looking for. Your palate is looking for the bite of alcohol and it to tell your brain, aha, I'm an adult. <laughs> this is, you know, so try something with lime or apple cider vinegar. Uh, sometimes all you need is something in your hand and, and five minutes on the couch. And yeah, your kids may not want to leave you alone. Ask them to rub your feet or something. I don't know. But like, sometimes that's what you need rather than the, the alcohol. Sometimes you, you just need like a something that feels a bit elevated. So if you don't have the expensive spirits on hand, find things from the grocery store that are going to like kind of awake your, awaken your palate like an a- apple cider vinegar. Sarah Kate, creator of the website, somegoodcleanfun.com. We're talking about sober curious, all about embracing an alcohol-free lifestyle. Uh, you've also mentioned that you're looking to the hospitality industry. And I know I've seen an increase in the number of alcohol-free options at bars and restaurants, but you're looking to the hospitality industry as well to um, to take advantage of this of this trend. I, I, I really believe that... Um... The hospital, well, first of all, the hospitality industry has been slammed by COVID and the pandemic. So we, I understand there's not a lot of extra money to be experimenting with non-alcoholic things, but I do believe that they're leaving money on the table because as you said, people say, I'm doing dry January, can't go out. 
but if they knew that there was a great alcohol-free wine or a, a great craft, there are so many great alcohol-free craft beers available now that, you know, if they knew they could go out and have that same experience, they would, they would, they would go out. And so I think it's, uh, yeah, the, the hospitality industry is, is slowly stepping up to the plate. I do believe that there's a lot more work to be done in this area to incorporate what I call inclusive hospitality, getting everybody at the table and everybody will end up benefiting from this. And for those who would like to follow in your footsteps, for instance, what would you suggest would be the first thing that they do to embrace? I mean, maybe you've done dry January, maybe you haven't. Um, but if you want to follow in your footsteps, what do you think? What is the first step? What's the important first step? I think for me, the important first step was um, reading and learning and not saying I'm quitting cold turkey tomorrow. It doesn't always work for everyone. And if you don't know why you're quitting, then it's going to be a lot harder. So I would recommend reading a book called This Naked Naked Mind by Annie Grace. Um, There's lots of other sober curious books out there, including the book called Sober Curious by Ruby Warrington. Um, And, you know, try, try a dry weekend try a dry five days, you know, and, and celebrate those things. If that's what you want, you celebrate those two or three days and, and don't get into the negative headspace of like, well, I had a drink on Wednesday, so I failed. It's a journey and you choose the destination and you choose how you get there. And so celebrate if you want to have some dry stretches, celebrate that it's a win. I'm looking forward to seeing a sex in the city in the future where they're all sitting around drinking alcohol-free crantinis. That'll be interesting to see. Well, they, have- there is, it, it happened and uh, they're drinking alcohol-free sparkling wine in one of the episodes because Perfect. Uh, there's a storyline there. So I'd check that out. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. The trend continues. Sarah Kate, creator of the website, Some Good Clean Fun, all about embracing an alcohol-free lifestyle. Thank you so much for taking some time in this dry January for some to, uh, to shed a little more light. <laughs>